This morning we will be in Luke chapter uh, 19. Well, this is a, a passage from the Gospel of Luke looking at uh, the entrance into Jerusalem. This text is often preached on uh, Palm Sunday as we are headed into uh, Easter. And we're starting a new series now for the next six weeks or so until we get to the summertime entitled The Heart of Evangelism. And it's really looking at this idea of what does it look like for you not to just go door, door, uh, knock, door to door knocking as an evangelist, but what does it look like for you as a Christian to live on mission as an evangelist in every part of your life? That it's not just one event that you go out and do evangelistic uh, events here and there, but it's your entire life. So this morning, we're li- really looking at this idea of praising Jesus. That is intrinsic to the believer of Christ, to praise Him. But as we open the passage, I want you to first uh, think about what comes to your mind when you hear the word praise. Maybe you think about praise in relation to your vocation or your work. You know that you receive praise, that we love receiving praise for a job well done. Or maybe that you are the boss now and you give the praise to jobs well done. Maybe you think about how praising relates to children. We praise them for good behavior, for good grades, for finishing their dinner, even for being quiet in church. Amen? We praise them. We give and receive praise from our spouse, from our parents, towards our friends, our loved ones, maybe even you have a desire to receive more praise than you're getting in these avenues. For many of us in this room, we will think about the word praise with associated, being associated with coming to church. We think about it maybe even in a genre of music, praise and worship music. What we do on Sunday, we come to praise Jesus. And I want to start with the idea, the notion that praising Something is intrinsic. It is written in the DNA of the human. That we all will praise something, whether we believe in Jesus or not. And if it is intrinsic to our very nature to praise, then we need to make sure that we are praising the right person, the right thing in the right way. So in our text today, we're going to see a very famous passage, the people surrounding Jerusalem, the disciples first, and then people surrounding Jerusalem, giving praise where praise is truly due to King Jesus. So let's go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 19. This is, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 40. I'm going to be reading through the, uh, this entire text in the ESV. So this is Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. When he had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called all of that, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloak, cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, 
already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today on this day that we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday, in which you entered into Jerusalem on the last leg of the journey, headed to the cross. Thankful that we serve you, a faithful God, who has completed the work of salvation on our behalf. Father, we pray uh, for attentive minds, for a careful ear, for understanding of your word, that we may be edified, that we may grow in grace, or that you would um, open our eyes through the Holy Spirit to see more of our sin and the beauty of your Son, Jesus. Be with us today. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So several years ago, I was thinking about this illustration that I'm about to give you, and at first I'm going to apologize that many of my illustrations come from kids' movies, but it's just what I swim in these days, okay? So... Recently, in the last 10 years, there have been a, a swath of movies that have come out called The Minions. Who has seen one of The Minions movies? So I have a context. Okay, so most of you at least have an understanding of who The Minions are. So if you don't, you've probably seen it on a DVD case at Walmart. So Minions are small, I guess they're about this big, uh, pill-shaped creatures, bright yellow, sometimes one eye, sometimes three eyes. And they have existed in the movie since the beginning of time. And these little minions, they're beings that exist only to serve the most evil masters in the universe. The beginning of the movie, we see the minions moving from master to master. And it's really uh, visually stimulating because it's like hundreds of these little yellow guys like waddling around and they go to this little T-Rex and the T-Rex like dies and he's all, they're all put their heads down and they waddle along and they find their next guy as a caveman. And they find him, and then he goes up to a bear and slaps it in the face, and the bear eats him, and the minions again are just like this. It's very stimulating because we just see they're seeking and seeking and seeking a master. The first part of this movie after that is, is about a journey to find a new master. And if you've watched the movies, you know this, it's this man named Gru. They're looking for someone to please them, someone to praise, someone to follow. And over and over again... The masters let them down. When I first saw this movie, we were in seminary, so theology is running through my mind all day long, and I'm sitting there watching this with my kids, and I'm thinking, that's me right there, running from master to master to master, and them just letting me down over and over again. I am like one of these little minions that has found the ultimate master, and I run back over and over again, going unfulfilled running around, praising thing after thing, always being let down. So, for all of us, we laugh, right? But in a broken world that we live in now, sin has captured our hearts. In our normal disposition, outside of the work of God in our life, will be to praise things outside of God. And it takes the work of God's Spirit to change our hearts, to have affections for God 
to turn our hard hearts into hearts of flesh. And even then, even now for you, Christian, we are often still stubborn. We still run and praise other things. Like a little minion who has found the perfect master and runs away to the, back to the T-Rex. Today in our passage, we get to see a beautiful picture of the people surrounding Jerusalem praising Jesus as he is on his last leg of this journey. We see here in this text that Jesus Christ is the one we were designed to praise. He is the focus of this passage. So the theme we're looking at today is this. There's an outline and the theme in your bulletin. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. The theme is rejoice and praise God for the divine king has come and his name is Jesus. Rejoice and praise God for the divine king has come. His name is Jesus. We're going to look at three things. First, the cult of the king. Second, the entrance of the king. And third, the praise of the king. Okay, so let's first look at the cult of the king. This is verses 28 through 35. So if you have your Bible open, keep it there. But in the context of where we are, we know this is the New Testament. So this is the third of four gospels. And in this gospel, particularly, Luke has written about Jesus' journey from chapter 9 forward, that he is headed towards Jerusalem. In chapter 9, it says he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's on a slow path from city to city, proclaiming himself, calling people to himself. And here in chapter 19, we come to the end of the journey, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. We see we're before, kind of 9 through 19, at the real fast pace. He's moving from city to city, and we just find out what's happening from city to city. Here, the movement of the story really slows down. The author uses many details to pull us in and say, we need to focus slowly because he's at the end of the road. Verse 29 mentions Bethany, a, a town that is just two miles away from Jerusalem. And he also mentions Bethphage, and we don't know the actual location of this but in the context, we know that it's nearby the Mount of Olives, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So painting the picture, he is right at the edge of Jerusalem. And each reference that is given is slowing the pace down and saying, focus here, right here, to Jesus the man, because he's coming to the end of his journey. This is the place where Jesus will ultimately succeed in bringing salvation to his people. So on the edge of town, Jesus calls his disciples to go find him a colt or a donkey. In verse 30, he says this, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it. And just as they had told him, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to him, them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So again, here in these verses, we see that Luke is narrowing the focus. He doesn't mention which town they go to. He doesn't mention which disciples are sent out. Because the focus is not on those things, the town or the disciples. The focus is on Jesus and his journey into Jerusalem. So the disciples, they follow the command. And they go get the cult that Jesus asked for. 
And there's a, a lack of details. It's kind of stark here, right? How does Jesus know that there's even a donkey in this city? The author doesn't tell us that. How, why does the owner just let the donkey go? We don't know that. What we do see in the grand narrative of Scripture, and specifically in this passage, that there is a premeditation of Jesus, God's own Son, for the work on the cross. So much so that the very transportation for the King of the universe to get into the place where He will be crucified is there on His command. Scriptures tell us that before the foundation of the world, the work of salvation was planned. In the Reformed world, we call this the covenant of redemption. This is a covenant that was made between the Godhead, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they would bring salvation through the slaying of God's very Son. So here, we see that even the mode of transportation is planned and carefully chosen beforehand. This is no accident. It's no coincidence. It is all planned. Even this colt, even this donkey, he's tied up to be used as transportation for the Son of God. So some may ask, and we need to ask the question probably, why did he choose a donkey to ride into Jerusalem? Maybe we expected a war horse for the time, something really strong and mighty. This is supposed to be a king. Some will say that he chose this animal because it links him to King David. That we know that Jesus fulfills the kingship that is laid out in David's life, in the covenant with David. Because during David's time, donkeys were seen as royalty. So David would have ridden on a donkey at a time. But after David, we know there was a prophet that came, Zechariah, and he prophesied that the Messiah would come riding in on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So for Jesus, his very choice of a donkey to ride in to Jerusalem on, he is identifying himself as the Messiah. He would have known this prophecy. While we might have thought that the king of the universe would come mounted high and strong on a mighty war horse. Jesus comes on a humble donkey. You could say that this is very symbolic of the kingship and the attitude that he brings. Kent Hughes in his commentary says that he chose the donkey because it beautifully portrayed both his position as king and his character as servant. That he was not a king that rode into Jerusalem to take over Jerusalem. He's a king that rode into Jerusalem to lay his life down in Jerusalem for his people. So the cult of the king proclaims the coming of the king. So church, do you see this? Do you see the work of Christ? Even the smallest detail was planned and intentional. That it, it, If I'm honest, for all of us in the room, there are times in our life where we will doubt all this Christian stuff. We will doubt if it is true, if it is reliable, if it helps us at all. It's helpful for us to see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled. Every single detail, even 
the little donkey that was probably sitting there, the owner unaware that had any relevance to salvation history. But Jesus knew. And all of this shows that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And there's no shame in having doubt, not at all. It's where the doubt takes you. Does it take you running away from God? Or does it take you saying, I need to run to the Scriptures and see what it says. Let the doubt you have take you to the Scriptures and see here in our text today the careful planning and execution of salvation through God's own Son. That this was not an accident or a coincidence. Okay, let's look secondly at the entrance of the king. This is verses 35 through 38. Verse 35 says this, And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. See again, Jesus is center stage in this narrative. That all the other characters in the narrative are simply support. And even in their actions, it shows us this. They bring the donkey to Jesus. They take off their cloaks and they lay it on the animal to provide a mount for him. And I got this from a commentary. They said, like a basketball team who has won the championship lifts their their coach up in the air. They lift up Jesus onto the donkey, putting him in the place of a king. The text goes even further than that, right? The disciples begin by praising him, but people outside of the disciples start joining in. They start taking off their clothes to spread their clothes on the ground as he rode. It doesn't mention palm branches here. This is Palm Sunday, right? But the Luke's account doesn't mention that. But in other Gospels, they mention palm branches being spread as well. This is why we celebrate Palm Sunday, the entrance into Jerusalem, the people begin to gather in celebration and say, the king is here. Our king that has been promised for so many years is here today. And in ancient history, this was an appropriate way for people to show how great an incoming king was. And for Jesus, they are providing a royal reception as he enters into Jerusalem that the dignity of a royal person demanded special honor and that's what these people bring to him they not only bring it with their actions they also praise him with their words in verse 37 and 38 he goes on saying this as he was drawing near already on the mount on the way on the way down the mount of olives the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise god with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So these people, the disciples specifically, had seen the miraculous deeds of Jesus. And maybe even if the people that were there had not seen them, they had definitely heard about Jesus and his work. And all of this, the miraculous deeds were always pointing, not to his power, but to his position as king as the messiah king they had seen him heal sick people bring sight to the blind even forgive sins and now they're seeing him raised up being welcomed finally as the king and their natural response is joyful praise praising with a loud voice which is not presbyterian at all right remember last week chuck mentioned 
that we can't even clap on the right beat. And as a drummer, it's horrible. Okay? <laughs> we, ju- we laugh, but the truth is this text here, with a loud voice, they are praising. With all of their being, they are praising God for what they had seen in His Son coming. They quote Psalm 118, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And the author links us to the beginning of his narrative for the second half when the multitude of angels at Jesus' birth says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. These people now are seeing this, what the angels saw before. Glory to God in the highest for this one brings peace to the earth. So in word and in deed, the people praise Jesus, saying, this is our king. He is here now. This is our king that brings peace in heaven through the work that he will accomplish. The Messiah king sent from God himself. Many of you know that at the end of last year, uh, Argentina won the World Cup. I don't watch lots of sports, but I still knew that. So I hope most of us in the room knew that. And it was a huge deal because Argentina's only won uh, three times. This is the third time. The last time was in 1986. It's my birth year, so it was easier for me to remember that. When Argentina won, the, com- the country was ecstatic. I don't know if you saw any videos or anything uh, around Christmas time last year, but the people of Argentina swarmed the streets in celebration of the championship. I think about people my age even, really, watching the World Cup year after year after year, not a single time in their lifetime have they won, and they finally won. We can watch the video when the team lands in Argentina, and the news reports say there was over a million people in the streets, and they parade through the streets in this open bus with the World Cup trophy, and celebrating throughout the whole night. When we hear biblical stories like the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, often the flair, the enthusiasm is just lost on us because we've heard it time and time again. You've probably heard this text preached in the last five years on this very Sunday, right? We think, oh, that's nice. I've heard that story before. Jesus on a donkey is really humble. Maybe people had like their nice button-down shirts or their suit on. They set it down and say, oh, praise Jesus. We laugh. But the excitement, the energy, the heart behind their worship is lost often on us. And I know I made the illustration of the, the parade in Argentina. and Definitely, that's not supposed to be a church service, right? But there's something to that, that those people are so dedicated to their team, that their heart comes out and they're just praising this team, right? And we see something closer to that picture in the narrative of Scripture, that when Jesus comes, the heart of the people can do nothing but joyfully praise him. That looks different for every person. So I'm not trying to prescribe what a Sunday Sunday morning worship looks like or what worship looks like for you as a whole. But I'm saying the heart behind it, I don't want you to lose the luster of your worship for God because it can become mundane quickly. This is the king of the universe that comes, mounted, yes, on a humble donkey, not to reign in Jerusalem, but to lay his life down. So the call today from this passage is seen plainly in the text, right? It's God's people are called to praise King Jesus 
We're called to praise him for all he has done with all of your life, with every ounce of your being and every sphere of your life, rejoicing in and praising Jesus. For he saw the debt that you could never pay. He saw every single sin, every single time you run away from him. He saw that. At the same time, he came, took on flesh, humbled himself to be mounted on a donkey, to ride into a town that he should have been welcomed in as the actual king. But instead, those very people took his life into their hands and he laid it down for them, for you and for me. So for us now, we need to look at our own life and see who are we functionally praising It's easy for us to get wrapped up in normal life, to go from day to day and just do our normal thing, right? And each part of our life, if we're not careful, can can become too important. Even very good things, family, friends, career, hobbies, these sorts of things. But we need to see, is Jesus at the very center of our lives and these things are being informed by the gospel or have these things crept into the middle and are now part of our very identity, a good question to ask that if your career if your family if your hobby was taken away tomorrow where would you run how would you feel would you shake your fist at god and say where are you There's no problem with asking him for help would you run away from god often we can test if something is a idol in our life by asking if it was gone what would i do where would I run? The other option is not to say family, career, hobbies is not important, but is to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ for what God has done to inform every area. They ask him how you may use these things that he has given you, a good family, a good career, fun hobbies, a good day of rest. How can you use all these things to, for the good of the kingdom. Now, these areas of your life are not bad in themselves, but they're horrible gods, just like the gods of the minions, right? The caveman and the T-Rex, they die. These things on the outside, they're not good gods. Jesus needs to be at the very center so Jesus can inform the work, the person the work of Jesus can inform these er- other areas in your life. Then these good things can be used to praise God. That's the beautiful thing. That these things don't have to be gone. They cannot be used. They're a way of praising God that you can love your family really well because you have been poured into with love from God's Son. And that brings glory to God. You can succeed in your career, which brings restoration to a given field, which brings kingdom impact, which brings the kingdom coming. You can rest on Sabbath and enjoy the good things that God has given to you in a hobby. And bring praise to him through that. But you see the difference. Jesus has to be at the center informing the other things. Let's look lastly at the praise of the king. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, this is verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So I want you to see here, as we conclude in this section 
But the salvation plan of Jesus attracts not only praise that we saw for the predominant uh, theme of this passage, but it also attracts opposition. We see this plainly in the words of the Pharisees. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, shut up. Shut them up. We don't want to hear that. We don't know the motive of the Pharisees. We can uh, think about things that we know about other scriptures. Maybe they're worried about the Romans uh, hearing the commotion and they want to squash it. Maybe they didn't believe that Jesus was actually the king. Maybe more likely that he didn't deserve this praise. Regardless, their hearts were hard towards Jesus. And Jesus responds, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, he's saying nothing can detract from this day. This day where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, nothing can detract. If every human were saying, I'm not praising him, the very creation would have praised him. You cannot stop the praise of King Jesus. So here in this text, I want to leave us with seeing him, seeing the king of the universe, God in the flesh, headed towards Jerusalem to accomplish his work on the cross for you and for me. While this first entrance was often disrupted by opposition, we just saw he still completed the work. He makes his way into Jerusalem. He lays his life down for his people as the servant king. And the praise of the people turns quickly into sorrow and bitter tears. But we know from the narrative as Christians who have the entire scripture, the grave does not hold him. That He beats sin and death once and for all. And we look forward to a second coming, a time when he will return even more glorious than our text today. Remember, today is on a donkey, a humble donkey, but he will come back on a mighty horse in victory over sin and death, making all things new. There will be no more pain, no more death, but peace and glory for all creation. And all God's people will cry out, this is our king. So church, let us do that today. See Jesus for who he is, for what he has done Turn to him in all of your life for rejoice and praise God for our divine king has come and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. God, how humbled we are that though we rebel against you time and time again, that you authored a plan of salvation before the foundation of the world to sin your very son, to take on flesh, to feel the misery that we feel in life, and yet to be without sin. Father, we thank you for the celebration of this day. We celebrate the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem where his work would be accomplished, where you would bring salvation to your people through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Father, as we go from this place, I pray that we would be constantly reminded of the beauty of your Son and the beauty of the work he has done on our behalf. Father, we thank you now for this time. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.